Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today, we have a real treat for me, and I think it's going to be for you as well, Professor Josiah Ober. He is a professor of political science and classics at Stanford University. I should disclose he was one of my professors, so it's really so exciting to be able to chat with him again about his new book. It was released just last week, The Civic Bargain, How Democracies Survive. In addition to his academic work on ancient political theory, institutions, and democracy, he's also the director of the Stanford Civics Initiative, a new program which is going to be teaching civics courses to Stanford undergraduates. So the link to that will be in the show notes as well. We talk about it a little bit at the end of the interview. But with no further ado, I hope you enjoy this discussion just as much as I did. Professor Ober, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Annika. It's just great to, great to be here and really looking forward to talking with you. So it's not that often that I get to talk to a classicist on the show. So I'm planning to spend as much time in the ancient world here as I feel like I can maybe get away with. But to kick us off here, let's look at kind of the broader picture. What's the point of writing a book like this? What's happening in America right now that leads you to believe that we need to look to the ancients? My sense is, and certainly um, that's shared by my co-author, Brooke Manville, that there is a pervasive um, uh, feeling in the country that something's really going wrong uh, with our current Democratic Republic, uh, that um, uh, this is not the way it was meant to go, um, that there is uh, much too much acrimony. Um, uh, polarization has uh, become increasingly uh, problematic. Uh, and uh, a lot of people, I think, feel that uh, the end is near. Um, uh, we mm-hmm. see a lot of books being written with titles like um, uh, Does Democracy Die? or When Does Democracy Die? Um, So our goal was to uh, say, yes, um, it is a time of uh, real concern uh, for the the future of democracy. But if we're going to do something about it rather than um, write obituaries, what we ought to be asking is how do democracies survive? And that Mm -hmm. um, took us back to the basics. In your book, you list three instances of things that could be real challenges for democracies. Your three were growth in wealth, growth of citizens, and increased diversity. You said that they put a lot of strain on the ability of citizens to rule themselves. And I think as an American, you read that and you're like, oh, those are three things that we have a lot of. We're super rich, we're super diverse, and we have a hell of a lot of people, a lot more than we had at the beginning of the Republic. So looking at those three challenges, and in your book, you point out that other democracies in history have had similar challenges. What do you see as the way that we respond to, to those challenges? So uh, this is what we call in the book the, the challenge of scale, uh, that um, in some ways uh, democracies uh, have to deal with their own success, mm-hmm. um, uh, at least historically, um, the ones that we're looking at, Athens, Rome, 
the UK um, and the United States are real success stories. Um, in each case, uh, the state um, got bigger, um, uh, got richer, um, and got more diverse uh, as it um, uh, became more democratic. So that really is the the big challenge, um, uh, because democracy, as we understand it, is the self-government by citizens, that is, citizens governing themselves, uh, rather than being governed by a boss, um, some third-party ruler. So the differences between citizens and the numbers of citizens who are engaged in this self-government tends to make it more challenging to build the kinds of um, policies to uh, make the kinds of bargains we call the book the civic bargain for a reason uh, mm-hmm. and it makes it makes makes this kind of bargaining more difficult um, uh, as you get more people as it were at the bargaining table or more people responsible for electing representatives um, to bargain for them uh, when their interests um, are more different um, uh, and when there is uh, uh, increasing um, inequality uh, among mm-hmm. the resources that each of them command. So, uh, democracy requires some level of equality, political equality, um, between citizens, such that the idea of one person, one vote is not meaningless. Um, and yet, um, as we gain in numbers, diversity, and um, inequality of resources, um, that question of how do I larger, more diverse uh, body of people um, uh, uh, remain meaningfully enough equal such that um, uh, they can really be imagined as governing themselves rather than being governed by some subset of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think the ancients in general will generously say we're pretty skeptical of this idea of, of one man, one vote. Um, I mean, Polybius famously advocated for a mixed form of government. Today, if you said we'd like to incorporate more aristocracy and oligarchy into our democracy, I mean, oligarchy, people immediately think of like Russian oil tycoons Mm -hmm. and aristocracy feels uh, very contrary to our general sense as Americans. We don't like that Mm -hmm. word. Um, So, you know, you're writing this book about democracy. Why focus on democracy specifically? Well, uh, democracy we see as um, one of the real breakthroughs um, in human forms of organization. We look across human history, at least since the um, beginnings of large-scale societies, um, uh, agriculture, um, uh, writing, um, the um, apparatus that we think of as civilization, most societies um, are run by bosses, um, either by a king or by, as it were, a, a gang, um, uh, or a king supported by a gang. Um, uh, most uh, probably, most uh, frequently, uh, the idea that 
um, the ordinary people, um, uh, people who had to work for a living, um, uh, people who don't um, trace their ancestry back to the gods, um, people who can't claim to have some special relationship um, with the divine order that isn't available um, uh, you know, to, to most people. Just ordinary people um, uh, could actually govern themselves is really a radical idea. Um, it really changes everything. Um, uh, one of the things that it changes is the potential um, for very diverse forms of expertise and experience um, and simply, you know, uh, life, uh, uh, life experience to be brought into the decision-making process. So instead of the decisions being made by people who have a very specific and uh, uh, very rare uh, form of of life, um, experience of life, um, understanding of what the world is. After all, kings, um, uh, ruling oligarchs, necessarily live in a bubble. Um, they don't have access to the full range of uh, human experience that exists within um, the communities that they govern. When we move to democracy, you have the potential for a yeah. great deal more, you know, so many more inputs. Um, so it, it suddenly breaks forward the potential for, um, uh, you know, genuinely innovative um, uh, and uh, uh, free, um, open, um, and new ways um, of uh, not only organizing ourselves, but uh, uh, new forms of, of technology um, and so on. So uh, I think it's really a, it's a hugely important um, development um, uh, and um, to my mind anyway, and certainly to the minds of people going back to antiquity, um, Aristotle, for example, being in a position of ruling and being ruled over in terms, um, that is being a participant in the government um, of the community of which you are a part is a fundamental human good, um, that there is something basic um, uh, about being one of the rulers, um, among the rulers, instead of being permanently ruled over, that Aristotle believed, and I think he's right, um, uh, makes a human life go better, all things considered. I want to put a pin in Aristotle, because there's a lot to unpack there. His Surely. views on democracy are complex. But, <laughs> but you've kind of alluded to, I mean, in your answer, you were talking about the diversity within democracies being a really big innovation. But as I kind of alluded to earlier in the introduction to your book, you were saying that diversity is one of the big challenges that uh, democracy or democratic government have to overcome. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, when we look at the ancient record, this is kind of a debate now that people are having mm -hmm. about diversity versus unity. When we look at the ancient record, what does it have to say about that debate? So I think that the, that really is the, the core of the challenge that democracies have to face, is how do you make diversity into a net plus instead of you know a net cost. Um, now, there always are costs. Um, uh, it's hard to organize a lot of people. It's hard to make decisions um, uh, harder uh, when people are more diverse in terms of their preferences, their interests, um, uh, their experience of life. 
Um, and yet, if you do it right, um, you get this uh, advantage of bringing um, mm. these diverse experiences, diverse forms of, of knowledge, of, of information, um, of simply raw data, get, get brought into the problem-solving space. And so it can be you know, a real advantage. How do you, you know, get that to work? That's really the challenge. And mm. it's a challenge ultimately of institutional design. Um, how do you create the institutions that manage the problems that emerge from diversity and capture the value that comes from diversity? But I think that really for every successful democracy has um, been the big question and the really very successful ones answer that question um, effectively. It's not a once and for all um, answer. Um, after all, you've got to um, continue to adapt your institutions as um, the world changes, um, as more citizens um, uh, enter the, as it were, bargaining space. Um, so uh, it's a continued uh, challenge. And clearly, um, uh, in the United States now, we're facing one of these moments in which we're asking ourselves, do we have the resources to answer the challenge? Um, and, you know, that remains to be seen. I mean, looking at the ancient world, it is, are there examples of people or of civilizations, of city-states that are able to work well with diversity and harness the power that you're talking about? Yeah, so I think this really is um, uh, certainly the case of uh, Athens. It's the case of Rome, which starts out as a really quite a small city-state. Um, so if we look at Athens, the big breakthrough um, of the Athenian revolution that creates this uh, democratic form of government in the uh, late 6th century BCE brought into the... You know, role of being self-governing, a really large number um, uh, of persons, um, many more than ever had been engaged in self-government before, uh, probably in the range of 30,000, which was just sort of unthinkably big um, in city-state uh, terms, and uh, was very diverse um, by, once again, ancient city-state terms. So we tend to think of diversity in terms of um, racial or ethnic or uh, uh, religious uh, uh, backgrounds. But the Athenians thought of diversity in terms of um, what uh, region of the Athenian territory were you from? Were you one of those guys who lived on the coast or um, near the urban center um, or in the agricultural um, inland? Very different lives, um, very different experiences, very different interests, um, uh, or at least substantially different. Um, uh, some people then very wealthy, um, uh, some people uh, having to uh, live you know, very near poverty, um, others in the middle, um, uh, hardworking. Once again, the idea that people who are so different um, in mm -hmm. terms of their wealth, in terms of uh, their, as it were, regional identities could all come together um, and govern themselves um, was really a, a, a huge challenge, um, understood as such. Um, Aristotle writes in his account of the constitution of Athens, or really the constitutional development history of Athens, um, uh, that the guy who worked out the, really the, 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 the institutional 
frame um, that made all of this possible, um, Cleisthenes, uh, deliberately sought to mix up the Athenians. Uh, he created um, new institutions that would require that men from the inland agricultural areas, the coastal areas, the urban areas would have to work together um, in relatively small teams um, in order to accomplish its central, um, uh, as it were, government functions. Uh, and the idea was that they would then um, become citizens of Athens, um, that they would develop an identity, um, which was an overarching civic identity. They wouldn't replace their local neighborhood identity. They stayed, you know, very attached to their villages or their um, neighborhoods. They uh, 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 certainly um, had different lives if they were wealthy um, or poor. But that was subsumed under um, an important civic identity as being an Athenian citizen. So there's an example of um, how it worked in antiquity, and it worked very well. Um, the Athenians went on to, um, to great success. The same kind of thing we see in, in, in ancient Rome. Uh, the real distinction there between the plebeians, the ordinary uh, Romans, and the Romans who could claim to be from a set of special families that had certain relationship to the divine order, the so-called patricians. Uh, well, the trick of creating a Roman Republic was welding together um, the plebeians and the patricians um, uh, under a common you know, Roman citizenship such that they could un imagine themselves as Romans first, um, and then plebeians or patricians uh, uh, only second. Yeah, I mean, I want to push you a little bit on the idea that both Rome and Athens were super successful at this. I think that is something that, I mean, people criticize Athens a lot for being unstable, that it, you know, the democratic system fell apart relatively quickly. The Roman one, it lasts a long time. But I think if you look into the details of it, it is, I mean, full of really serious conflict and multiple, I mean, like a secessio plebis. We've had only one secession in American history, and it was one of arguably the greatest disaster uh, ever to strike our republic. Um, and so in the details, there's tons and tons of social strife and people having to strike multiple bargains and then those bargains falling apart. So defend for me a little bit uh, why these two examples are ones that you consider really successful examples. Yeah. So I think if we step back, we ask, you know, what do we expect out of um, our society? Or if we form a, a state, what do we expect out of, out of the state um, uh, in which we live? And I think in the first instance, um, uh, we expect um, uh, security. Yep. Uh, and then we expect the capacity um, to develop a certain baseline welfare, so, so a, 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 a material standard that is well above, you know, just bare life. Uh, and the 
And that really is a that that, that is a challenge um, in the uh, uh, Greek world, um, uh, in the world that uh, Rome uh, emerged in. Um, these were very um, uh, fiercely competitive uh, worlds, um, city state against city state, you know, major empires um, uh, at the uh, yeah. periphery um, uh, that uh, were also predatory uh, empires. So what we can say about um, ancient uh, Athens and ancient Rome is they um, did indeed uh, provide uh, a successful, that is, relatively secure um, uh, and um, uh, relatively wealthy, um, uh, relatively materially um, uh, successful um, lives for a great many people. Now, they didn't do this without conflict. Um, uh, actually, well, obviously was, um, uh, in fact, conflict. But if we look at uh, uh, the history of, of Athens, um, Although uh, Plato uh, tended to see um, democracy as a constant churn and, and so on, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a background question uh, that you can ask Plato. Um, uh, well, gee, you know, this democracy is so chaotic, it's so churning, it's so, uh, 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 you know, un unstable. Why do you continue to live there, Plato? <laughs> and, and, and she, um, how come your um, teacher Socrates um, uh, uh, said that he actually preferred never to leave um, mm. uh, uh, the city? Um, uh, and she, you had this great student, Aristotle. How come he lived almost his entire life uh, in Athens? Um, so, uh, uh, and I think the answer is, compared to the alternatives, um, uh, this society, Athens, um, uh, gave them both, once again, the capacity, the baseline security, the baseline welfare, the baseline protection, um, uh, the freedom, uh, the sense of uh, uh, being able to do what they desired to do um, uh, that was greater than um, any place else that they were going to be. It was a better place to be a philosopher, um, mm -hmm. in part because it was more secure um, and more prosperous. Um, so uh, I think that uh, that's something we, we need to look at. Um, uh, we can look at, do people want to join the club? Um, mm. uh, did people from around the Greek world come to Athens wanting to live there, um, even if they couldn't become full citizens? The answer is absolutely yes. Why did Aristotle come to Athens? best place to be. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in his case, to become a, a philosopher. But why did you know thousands and thousands, almost certainly tens of thousands of other Greeks um, come to Athens? Because it was the best thing going. Um, it was the most successful city-state around. Um, and the same thing with Rome. Uh, why do uh, so many people convert, as it were, to being Romans? Now, sometimes in the aftermath of wars, um, uh, but Roman citizenship expands dramatically across the period of the Republic. Um, and that, I think, is once again some indic indication that Rome was a very successful state. Now, once again, compared to the alternatives that uh, were available in antiquity. All right, we have three strikes on Aristotle, so we got to talk about it. Um, <laughs> um, a lot of the basis for democratic thought, as the basis of many schools of thought um, within philosophy, a lot of it really is rooted in Plato and Aristotle. 
Plato and Aristotle, in fact, did not like democracy very much. I mean, you sort of alluded to Plato has all these complaints about it. It's not their ideal form of government. How do we square the circle? How much of the way that we think about democracy comes from Plato and Aristotle and how much should? Mm -hmm. No, very good. So uh, uh, let's start with Aristotle and work back to Plato um, and maybe work back ultimately to Socrates. Um, uh, And uh, uh, so for Aristotle, um, uh, there was um, uh, there were six forms of regime. Three of them were imagined as ideal or best um, or um, uncorrupted. Uh, uh, So um, a pure form of kingship, a pure form of aristocracy, and a form of government that he called polity, um, sort of a pure form of democracy. Um, The problem was is these were rare to non-existent. Um, that uh, he couldn't point to an actual kingship that fit his criteria. Um, He doesn't seem to know of, at least in the real world, he might imagine he could create an ideal form of aristocracy. Um, I think he imagines there are some of these better forms of polity, but that's really a cleaned up form of democracy. Most of the societies that he knew were either democracies, the other three forms of government that he identified democracies, oligarchies, or tyrannies. Um, And uh, these are all, of course, um, governments for city-states. His clear ranking um, uh, among um, the commonly existing forms of government is that democracy is better than oligarchy, more stable, um, uh, more able to suit um, what Aristotle imagined were the natural desires um, and capacities of human beings, um, uh, and um, uh, certainly um, better um, uh, place for a philosopher to live. And oligarchy was much better than tyranny. Tyranny is just a disaster, according to both uh, uh, Aristotle and, and Plato. So, um, you know, Aristotle, uh, uh, if you're going to say, well, you have to choose among the commonly existing forms of Mm -hmm. regime, that's very clear. He thinks democracy is the best form. We then go to Aristotle's ideal form of government that he lays out in his work called The Politics in the last books of The Politics. Um, And in some sense, it is certainly an aristocracy. All of the citizens of this ideal community that he'd like to imagine is a possible community, calls it the best possible form of of government. Um, All of the citizens are both virtuous and they're reasonably well off. They don't have to work for a living. Um, uh, But it's also the case um, that it's pretty clear that all of the adult male um, residents um, who are citizens um, of this com- of, of his ideal state are also um, serve as uh, as the rulers collectively um, and so when all of the adult male citizens all of the adult male residents who are native to the community um, are citizens in an active sense as being um, participants in the government. And that's the that's Aristotle's definition of democracy. So he's got an aristocracy that's also a democracy. It may be imagined as a form of what he called polity. At any rate, there is something very strongly democratic about Aristotle's thought in that he supposed that humans are 
political animals, um, and that as political animals, that is, um, individuals who have a strong impulse um, to engage in governing ourselves, um, uh, any uh, human who was not in some ways corrupted is going to have a desire to engage in government. Uh, and therefore, the best form of government um, uh, is going to make that possible. It's not going to be frustrating the natural desires, um, the natural capacities um, of most of the residents of the community. Oligarchy did frustrate those desires. So did tyranny. Um, uh, it's only when you have some, uh, thing that you, something that at least has these democratic features um, that you'd really have uh, a form of government that as good as it could be. And I think um, so that's the sort of the democratic edge. Now, lots of things about existing democracies Aristotle didn't like, um, but still in all, he saw the existing democracies mm -hmm. as better than most of the available alternatives. Hmm. So I want to push you a little bit on this idea that we sort of brought up at the beginning of this conversation, but the idea that democracy means having no boss. Mm -hmm. and I think the, the root of my question is, in what sense are the people not a boss? I think the ancients have this idea of demagoguery in which the people kind of take on um, that sort of more authoritarian role. Um, how do is that category still useful? Does is the idea of people who appeal uh, to the people as demagogues is that somehow anti-democratic, or is it true that the people really can be a boss in the negative sense of the word? Yeah, yeah. So I, the the, um, the Greeks um, and certainly the the Romans um, yeah. as well uh, were very aware of the danger of what we now would call um, uh, majoritarian tyranny. Um, that the, the mass of people, um, uh, the majority, uh, would simply um, dominate um, uh, mm. in uh, uh, the negative sense, um, yeah. in the most negative sense, um, uh, all others, um, and simply impose their will. Uh, uh, it was especially concerning um, to wealthy elites who thought that the ordinary citizens, the people who had to work for a living, being the majority uh, would simply use their majoritarian power um, to uh, basically exploit um, the wealthy, to um, uh, extort uh, uh, from them uh, their wealth. Uh, so, um, so that was that was a well they were well aware of this as a, as a real problem. If we look at the history of the best documented of the Greek democracies, which is course, Athens, um, mm. uh, what we see is that doesn't happen. Um, there's never a time in which the uh, majority simply um, uh, votes to um, take the, um, the, the, the wealth of the, uh, of the rich. Um, uh, what we get in Athens um, is, you know, ultimately a civic bargain. That is a bargain among people who were citizens, wealthy and non-wealthy, um, uh, that ended in um, uh, resisting the tendency of the wealthy or of the elite to become a boss, to create an oligarchy, to simply rule over in their own interest everybody else, but also push back against the tendency of the many um, to use their majority power um, uh, to exploit um, the, uh, the few. 
so it was a delicate balance. Um, uh, there was always the danger it could go completely off the rails. Um, it had to be maintained through well-designed institutions, and it had to be maintained through constant communication. Um, uh, that is, um, the kind of speeches that political leaders, typically from the elite, gave in the public assemblies um, uh, such that the many, um, the people who came to the assembly, ended up voting for policies that were not exploitative, <laughs> that did maintain security, that maintained welfare, that maintained um, the, uh, the public uh, uh, peace, you know, the, the peace in the, in the, in the community. Um, and so once again, that's a, to, to, to tell that story in detail requires, you know, a lot of time and energy. And I've devoted much of my career to trying to tell that story. Um, uh, but uh, uh, it does get us exactly to this question of the demagogue, because the leaders in a democracy, democracy needs leaders, um, it's not going to work without anybody taking a position of leadership. Um, the leaders in uh, a democracy like that of um, Athens or that of, of that of Rome uh, was in the form of um, those who could make successful rhetorical appeals to a large audience, to a council or to a senate um, uh, or to an assembly of citizens. So uh, rhetoric was really important. Um, you had to be able to make an argument succinctly, um, powerfully, um, uh, well put together that will appeal to a large body, of, um, a diverse body uh, of citizens. Um, so uh, rhetoric then became a highly, you know, absolutely essential tool, you know, developing, you know, it becomes formally developed, uh, uh, and we get the great orators like Demosthenes um, uh, uh, or Cicero um, become, you know, major political leaders. Um, uh, so to, an orator, a great orator, um, can use that tool, that skill, for good or for ill within a democratic republic. Um, those who use it for good um, uh, may be, may take the, 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 the title demagogue, just means um, leader of the demos, right? Yeah. Um, uh, leader of the people um, and use it in the, in, the, in the right way as an advisor, um, as an expert um, who can give good advice, um, uh, who can resist the tendency of a mass audience to simply grab at some um, short-term gain that's going to end up in, in long-term problems. Um, uh, and uh, the other way, however, um, uh, uh, rhetoric can be used in a bad sense, um, and the demagogue um, uh, can then uh, either um, mislead the people, um, lead them to, to desire things that might seem to be great in the short run and are going to be catastrophic um, uh, in the long run. There's certainly examples of that from ancient and modern democracy. Um, or the um, uh, demagogue can turn out to be simply corrupt, um, uh, can be uh, um, 
doing things um, in his own interest or in the interest of um, a few of his friends instead of the uh, common interest and may lead to you know, creating policies, um, uh, getting votes um, that in the end only benefit a few um, instead of benefiting the, the public good. Um, or a demagogue can, in the worst sense, uh, worst condition, um, simply not be working for the interests of his community at all. He can be in the pay of somebody else. Um, his voice can be bought. Um, uh, for example, as uh, uh, Demosthenes accused some of his uh, uh, rivals, uh, they're bought by Philip of Macedon, um, uh, and therefore, instead of being led um, in ways that will uh, help the Athenians maintain their security and welfare, they're being led in a way that is to the advantage of some foreign power. But there's always that worry, right, that the, that the leader, um, the leader of the people, the demagogue, will become one of these bad types um, uh, as opposed to one of the good types. Mm-hmm. And the distinguishing between the bad types and the good types um, becomes one of the great challenges um, uh, of every um, democratic community. Yeah, I mean, I think the most famous example would be Julius Caesar. Um, And I think it's such an interesting example to think about because when you, the most people's, you know, popular perception of Rome, you think, okay, Caesar ended democracy. And then you think, okay, we have a Senate. Senate is democracy. As you point out in your book, actually, the Senate was a pretty uh, aristocratic institution. I mean, you, you give an example where you're saying, in fact, one of the reasons why uh, Rome was more democratic is because not everything had to be approved by the Senate, which is a really interesting turn of words. Talk a little bit about, I mean, in Rome specifically, that kind of appearance versus reality. I mean, what what is the actual, is it actually true that the people as a whole tend to prefer to anoint a leader and the elites tend to be the ones who like to have big long councils where you don't need to have a job and you can just show up and talk as long as you want? Yeah, so um, uh, this is really one of the uh, uh, big questions um, uh, that I think uh, goes back to our friend Plato. I mean, Plato was very worried that um, democracy um, would lead to tyranny um, because um, the people would come to follow a bad type leader um, who would, in the end, um, use his um, authority uh, uh, to to, to take power, to be to become a boss, um, and therefore, by definition, to end democracy. If we say democracy is no boss except one another, as soon as the demagogue simply becomes the boss, um, then it's then it's really all over. And, and Plato thought that that was a, a likely outcome, um, or at least in principle, he thought it was a likely outcome. Not at all clear that he thought that was going to happen in his lifetime uh, in Athens, which it did not. Um, uh, so yeah, well, then we go to to Rome, um, uh, and Rome has this um, uh, so once again set of really sophisticated uh, uh, institutions, including the institution of the dictatorship. Yeah. And so the Romans recognized that there were moments in which the crisis was sufficiently. Um, uh, 
it's, it's, it's uh, time sensitive, shall we say, <laughs> uh, that uh, all of the ordinary um, sort of checks and balances that Polybius talks about in his great um, description of the Roman constitution as being balanced between something like kingship and something like aristocracy and something like democracy and, uh, uh, and that the uh, consuls um, and the Senate um, and that the assemblies of the people um, balance nicely and kept uh, uh, Rome on an even keel um, uh, and allowed for um, uh, growth uh, without without uh, collapse. But there's always the danger um, uh, that these institutions um, uh, will get out of balance such that um, the dictator, someone given authority for a limited period of time to deal with a specific crisis, um, with that authority lapsing with the end of the crisis or within six months time, whichever comes first, somebody's going to come up with the idea that, gee, um, it would be nice to be dictator for the long run. Um, of course, that's ultimately what Julius Caesar um, does. Um, he takes on this role um, uh, and makes it um, uh, without without end, um, uh, or at least um, uh, until he is ended uh, by various people who thought he had become uh, simply a tyrant, uh, you know, the worst kind of uh, a dictator. Uh, so, yeah, so this is always a, really a, a threat. Um, I think that the idea uh, that, um, uh, that, that oligarchs um, uh, or um, perhaps it's better to say aristocrats um, uh, are willing to extend out um, uh, to more democratic forms is, is true. The question is, are they, do they do this out of some kind of a virtuous sense that that would be the right thing to do? Or they, do they do it because um, uh, it's the best bargain that they can get? So if we think about, um, you know, yeah, you talked about this, uh, this is the session of the plebs, they, they, the refusal of the plebs to go along um, uh, until they got the right agreement from the patricians. Yeah. Um, uh, this is an example, I think, um, of the elite, um, the aristocrats, as it were, being put in a position that they have to give more um, uh rights, um, standing, um, uh, influence um, to the rest of the citizens, that is, the, the, the plebeians. Um, and uh, that series of hard bargains, the plebs saying, nope, we won't fight unless, and the patricians finally saying, well, if you don't fight, then Rome is ended. And the plebeians saying, yeah, it's your choice, guys. Um, uh, and the patricians say, okay, all right, all right, we'll share the consulship. Okay, intermarriage is all right. Um, you know, a series of agreements um, uh, that are, you know, they're hard bargained, um, uh, but they are bargains, and they're bargains that brings Rome ultimately um, mm. uh, into this nice um, uh, condition of balance for several hundred years that Polybius celebrates. But that balance has to be sustained. Um, you've got to constantly adjust the balance um, uh, as Rome got bigger and bigger, richer and richer. And so again, this problem of scale, more Romans, more diversity, um, yeah. uh, much more wealth um, and being very unevenly distributed. Um, ultimately, the Romans weren't able to find that rebalancing, that recalibration. Um, what happens? Well, eventually someone turns out to be 
Caesar says, you need a boss, I'll do it. Um, uh, and um, uh, that basically crashes the, uh, the whole uh, Republican or Democratic uh, approach. Well, it's my least favorite part of the interview, the part where I have to leave the ancient world. So we're going to go back to talking about America here, but hopefully incorporate some of that, the ancient world still back into it. Um, you know, you quote James Madison mm-hmm. saying that America is a republic, not a democracy. And then later on in the chapter, you point out that neither Madison nor Rousseau knew enough about the real history of citizen self-government in ancient Greece to make mm-hmm. the historical case for a distinction between democracy and republic. So we're a little biased. We're named after James Madison. What did James Madison get wrong? Yeah, I think that Madison um, had a um, conception of um, democracy that really came from his reading of um, uh, ancient Greek history. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he read ancient Greek history based on the texts that were available to him. Um, uh, and the texts that were available to him were, for the most part, pretty hostile um, to democracy, for Mm. example, like Plato. He was really worried that Plato was right. If you get um, uh, something that is democratic in an Athenian sense, things will fall apart very quickly. Um, Madison was also worried that um, democracy had to mean um, uh, all direct government by massive citizen assemblies. Rousseau has the same idea. Mm. Um, uh, We know much more now about the details of how the Athenian government actually worked. Um, uh, Madison didn't have the advantage of um, Aristotle's great work, The Constitution Mm. of the Athenians, which was only discovered on a papyrus um, uh, 100 years after um, uh, Madison was uh, uh, doing his work, nor did he have um, uh, access to the great uh, uh, large body of inscriptions that we now have, decrees of the Athenians um, uh, that actually gives us a much more detailed conception of how the Athenians um, uh, uh, did their did their business. Um, uh, so we really know more um, than Madison could have known. Um, uh, and uh, one of the things that we learn from that is that Athens, um, in fact, had representative forms of institution. Um, the Council of 500, which was mm-hmm. one of the absolute key democratic institutions, sets the agenda for the citizen assembly, was a representative body. Um, it was chosen um, by, a, uh, basically, it, it, uh, by um, uh, assigning um, uh, a certain number of representatives to each of the um, uh, villages and neighborhoods of Athens based on um, population. So uh, uh, the idea that democracy is always direct um, is, not, um, is not right. Um, uh, the other thing that uh, Madison really couldn't have known, because very little you know, was known about the history of the um, uh, post-Alexander period, um, the Hellenistic period, um, couldn't have known that democracy long outlived um, uh, uh, the takeover by the Macedonians, um, mm. uh, that democracy continued on for hundreds of years um, after um, sort of the golden age of Athens. So actually, it turns out that there was a much longer, much more sort of stable period of democratic development in the Greek world. Which again, he just simply didn't have uh, didn't have access to this. But Madison was one of the great you know, political theorists of 
all time, uh, maybe the greatest um, uh, political theorist that America has ever produced. Um, uh, and uh, but. He's, like every other theorist, uh, limited um, by the empirical evidence that he has to work with. Um, happily, we have empirical evidence for the history of, of uh, Athens, the history of Rome, that Madison didn't have available to him. Um, and therefore, we can say that the kind of sharp distinctions that he was making between republic and, and democracy simply don't hold in the cases that he was using to try to make that distinction. Would it be fair to say that Madison was right by accident then, given what you said? Are there examples of things that he said that he thought conflicted with the Greek record, but that in fact went along with it? Uh, so um, uh, so I think Madison, um, maybe the thing that Madison most wanted um, out of the Greek record, if I'm getting your question right here, um, uh, is really an account of um, how does a federal state work? Um, he had Polybius, um, uh, who was an official um, in the federal state of, of Achaia, but Polybius doesn't really give enough evidence uh, for that. Um, he, he gives you some, a sense of Yes, this was a great thing. It worked out very well. It was a bunch of um, independent states that worked together um, to be a kind of super state. You know, that was what you know, Madison was, was aiming at. Um, uh, but once again, um, uh, he just didn't have enough evidence um, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to get it out of the ancient uh, text. We now much, know much more about federal states than, than, than he did then. But he got it right. Right. He figured out, I mean, how to, maybe by accident, but by, ta by taking what he did know and then just extrapolating what, what might be possible, he saw that it would be possible to, in fact, create a much larger state um, uh, that would be stable um, uh, and that would uh, not be um, subject to what he thought was um, the necessary uh, uh, instability of, uh, of very small republics. So yeah, in that case, uh, uh, he used what he got, what, what he had, um, and maybe accidentally, or maybe simply because he's just a great theorist, um, and he can extrapolate from first principles. Um, yeah. uh, he saw, he envisioned um, uh, what a federal state could be, and why expanding the size of the state would not necessarily um, uh, cause it to, to fall apart. Why a republic, um, uh, in his terms, um, could in fact be be great instead of having to be small. I want to talk a little bit about the word bargain here. Um, you know, bargain is a kind of a selfish word. I mean, it, a bargain does not imply that you're thinking, oh, what can I do that can help my opponent? You're thinking of them as an opponent. You're trying to think of something that works. And in fact, um, you know, the most impactful bargains that you talk about in your book and that we've talked about in this conversation are things like the American Revolution, which are caused by terrible governance, things like Magna Carta that are caused by terrible financial corruption. Um, is this a negative picture? Are we going to have to rely on people, you know, different groups of people really just kind of jostling for themselves? Are we going to have to experience another cataclysm in order to pursue the same, you know, pursue the civic bargain? No, great, great question. Um, uh, so a bargain, as we understand it, um, uh, is not zero sum. Hmm. Um, if we say that everything that you gain 
I lose um, in some kind of a deal that we're making. It's not a true bargain. Um, um, some people have called that the gunman's bargain, you know, your money or your life. Um, yeah. The gunman, you know, gets, you know, your money and well, you get away with your life, but it's not, a, it's not a true bargain. In, in true bargains, uh, uh, both sides are better off inside the bargain than they are outside the bargain. Um, so you think every time you go into a store and you give the guy some money and the guy gives you an, a widget, um, uh, you're better off with the widget. Um, the store owner's better off with the money. You agree that that's the case. Um, now, uh, maybe if you were to get everything you'd want, you'd get your widget um, uh, and not give any money for it at all. And maybe the store owner would get your money you know, and not give you the widget. But that's not would not be a bargain. Um, you both recognize that the mm-hmm. other side is gaining something. Um, you're not gaining everything that you might ideally hope for, um, but you're much better off or you're relatively better off inside the bargain um, uh, than you are outside of it. And this means that real bargaining, um, you're not thinking of the person with whom you're bargaining as your enemy. You can say it is your bargaining partner, you can say it is, you know, an an opponent in that you're trying to get as much as you can, you know, you'd like to offer the, you know, um, the the least money possible for the thing you're getting, maybe you're negotiating over a used car or something that you think there's some real wiggle room. Um, But, uh, uh, but, but nonetheless, it's not your enemy. Um, uh, And that's why we say in the book, that in order to maintain the kind of civic bargain, that is the kind of bargain about how are we going to live together? You know, what are the procedures we'll use to make decisions? What are the actual decisions, substantive decisions that we'll make? This has to be made by people who imagine themselves as what Aristotle called, our friend Aristotle again, what Aristotle called civic friends. Mm. Now, my civic friends aren't my personal friends. Um, They're not necessarily people I want to even hang out with a lot. I might not even like them, but still in all, they are people with whom I am in a shared project and a shared project or a shared enterprise that is ongoing. Um, uh, And I recognize that um, I need to treat them as bargaining partners, not enemies, um, individuals with whom I'm going to try to create more value um, in total rather than destroying them. Uh, And that's really the key thing. I think that's really one of the dangers um, that we confront now um, in the 21st century is the rather high level, relatively high level of enmity, the the tendency to see those who don't agree with us in the other party um, uh, as being our enemies, um, people who should be destroyed, um, uh, who must be somehow thrust out of um, the common enterprise in order for the enterprise to go forward. And um, that's fatal. Um, uh, Without without the capacity to bargain, without the capacity to see those with whom we're bargaining as civic friends, um, uh, democracy, um, democratic republics um, uh, can't exist. So in your 
book, in the introduction, you list seven things that we're going to need if we're going to maintain democracy. Civic friendship is one of them. Another of them is civic education. Um, And I know that, I mean, just sort of by virtue of having been your student and being involved at Stanford, I know that you've done a lot more for this than than many people. Um, And which is no mean feat, because I think right now, more than ever, everyone likes the idea of civic education. But the issues that are most important within civic education are some of the most contested and people really have deep disagreements about how you should teach really basic things like American history um, and all those kinds of topics. So coming a little bit from your personal experience, um, talk about what a positive vision for what civic education is should look like. Yeah, um, thanks. I mean, we do say in the book that this is really the ultimate foundation of all the rest of it. uh, If we have the right kind of education as citizens, if we learn the right things, and if we teach one another the right things, then we will recognize the essential nature of civic friendship. We'll be able to make bargains. um, We'll be able to create the right kind of institutions, make decisions about who is a citizen, maintain security and welfare, um, and continue to govern ourselves uh, without a boss. So both all the way up these, these seven conditions, it all really rests on civic education. So today, what do we need? Um, uh, one place to imagine starting is it would be great if all Americans um, uh, could pass um, uh, a naturalization exam. Yep. That, would be a good, that would be a good foundation. I don't think that's an adequate foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to know that you know there are a hundred members of the Senate. Uh, the, the Electoral College works like this, and so on. But I think we have to go deeper, at least at the level of higher education. We have to go substantially um, uh, deeper than that, um, uh, and uh, uh, we have to, I think, uh, uh, recognize um, at the core uh, the essential value of cooperation. I think that's what civic friendship or civic education really needs to be about, is about um, uh, why is cooperation important? Um, It's easy to forget. We can imagine ourselves as being in a kind of uh, uh, dog-eat-dog competition all the way down world. We're not in that world. We're in a world in which we have to uh, cooperate. Um, uh, And uh, we have to recognize then why is cooperation hard? What's so difficult about cooperation? Um, uh, and that really gets into questions um, uh, that are addressed, um, for example, by contemporary game theory. So I think that needs to be part of the, the you know, why do we need cooperation? Why is it just, why is it hard? Is it just because, is it hard because people are mean? No, it's because of our um, uh, self-interest. People mm. have some grounding um, in self-interest. And in order to cooperate, we have to find ways um, uh, that we can conjoin um, uh, our interests. We don't fall into these uh, dilemmas of, of, of cooperation. Um, so I think we, we certainly need that. We need to understand our own history, American history, but we need to go beyond American history. I think the tendency to think, you know, that's all there is to civic education is learning what happened in America is a mistake. Um, well, you and I can probably agree, but I think we can make the argument that if we don't understand the deep history of 
democratic republics. Um, if we don't understand what's happened, for example, in um, uh, early modern um, uh, cases in which democracy failed miserably. We look at the French Revolution and what happens um, there. We need to really then sort of expand out, understand um, what are the conditions that make democracy work and what under what conditions does democracy fail. We need to get people to think about the relationship between conditions, the things that we need to make this thing work, and our values. Right? We tend to sort of think... That conditions and values are the same thing, and clearly they're related, but they're not just the same thing. Um, uh, at any rate, we need to think about how values like freedom, equality, dignity of persons um, relates to the basic conditions, um, capacity to bargain, um, being civic friends, um, uh, and so on. Uh, and once again, that's not simple. Um, uh, it's not even simple to think about how freedom and equality um, are balanced out among uh, you know, between them, between themselves uh, as as values. Um, uh, so uh, you know, we need to think about um, uh, uh, how the um, to balance the power of a community of citizens to do things through ultimately majoritarian um, forms of decision making is balanced out against the rule of law. Um, you know. That's not an easy one. (laughs) Getting it right is really important. If uh, we can't make changes, um, uh, we are going to um, atrophy. Um, uh, If we uh, have no kind of steering, uh, we have no kind of break on the changes we make, we have no respect for law, um, we're going to go off the rails. Um, So I think that needs to be uh, 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 right there. And ultimately, um, uh, we need to think about the essential role of sharp criticism Mm. um, of our democratic system and of the values that sustain it. So we need people like Plato in order for democracy to work. Uh, I think the core idea is that Athenian democracy would not have sustained itself for as long as it did if it hadn't had serious critics challenging the Athenians to do better, challenging them to incorporate the rule of law um, into the kind of majoritarian institutions that um, uh, democracy began with. Um, We need then to attend to criticism, um, uh, philosophical criticism, protest, um, uh, uh, um, and um, listen to criticism uh, when our practice and values become uh, a disjoint. Um, So, you know, ultimately, I think civic education needs to um, tell us, um, teach us, um, remind us that democracy is really hard. It's, you know, it's hard to get, it's hard to keep, but it also needs to explain, you know, once again, generation by generation, why it matters. You know, yeah. why is it better to live as a citizen in a republic than it is as the subject of even a benevolent sort of dictator? And I think that's, once again, something that needs to be thought through. It needs to be taught. At least we need to um, uh, present people with that argument and let them decide for themselves um, whether it's better to live with all of the struggles and difficulties we have 
being free or whether it would be better to live contentedly with maybe a rather gentle boot on our neck. (laughs) Well, I'm so sad to have to cut this conversation short, but I can't think of a better note to end on. And we are at time. So thank you so much for, I mean, the work that you've done at Stanford implementing that civic education and for this book. It was really, really a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Attica. I'll look forward to next time we talk. There you have it, Madisonians, Professor Josiah Ober on his recent book, The Civic Bargain, How Democracies Survive. The link to the book is in the show notes. As I remarked to him before this interview, one of the really great things, in my opinion, about the book is that rather than making sort of broad statements about democracy, it really goes in depth on historical examples of democracies and the civic bargains that sustained them. So please do go ahead and check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find out more about us at the Madison Program and what we do here on Princeton's campus at jmp.princeton.edu. In addition to the full archive of Madison's Notes episodes, you can also find all of our upcoming events for this year, all of our past events you can get on our mailing list. You can also get immediate updates about what's going on here at the Madison Program by following us on Twitter at Madison Program or on Instagram or Facebook. And as always, we really appreciate any ratings or reviews. Let us know how we're doing. It's really helpful for us to hear from you. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time here on Madison's Notes.